Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Class Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School Class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening. Come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Got a packed house this morning for our exciting topic today of church government. I uh, I was telling somebody this week I was excited about church government, and they said, I, "I bet you're the only one in the room that's going to be excited about church government." And that's that's okay. Even if I am, I'm alright with that. Uh, no, it's somebody at work, actually. So, yeah. Uh, all right, so let's start with our scripture memory passage review. We got Second Corinthians ten three and four. So some of these are like the first verse is really short. So who's up? Miss Amy, Miss Darla. Who else we got? Got anybody else? No. Going once, going twice. All right. Now we'll start with Miss Darla today. Thank you. You're welcome. Absolutely. Okay. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Yes. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Yes, they do. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And that's the only way this works. <laughs> the only way Christianity works is if there is supreme power injected into it. Otherwise, it's just, you know, we're playing house at another building. So, all right, Miss Amy? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Yes. For our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Yes, very good. Excellent. Great job. All right, so like I said just a minute ago, we're in uh, church government today, so uh, they feel like I'm ringing just a little right here. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of different things. So we're going to look at uh, really three different areas. I'm going to, I'm going to blow through point A. And I'm probably not even going to talk about, we probably won't even get to it, uh, point D on the back of your handout. Uh, and what I want to spend a lot of time on is the forms of church government. government because it, my experience has been that, that those of us in Baptist churches are not very familiar with how everybody else does stuff. So we're going to try to look at some other models this morning. So we'll start with church officers. Uh, so a church officer, here's your first blank, is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. So publicly recognized. I never spell publicly right, so it's P-U-B-L-I-C-L-Y, for those of you that want to put an A in there somewhere. Or two L's uh, together. That's not right either. Um, so looks like I have some friends that don't spell it right either, so that's good to know. All right, so uh, according to this definition, you've got elders, uh, pastors, and deacons are considered church officers. Um, uh, you, you've also got, you know, in modern New Testament, current day uh, churches, uh, you've got things like church treasurer and church moderators. Uh, you might have trustees, those types of offices. 
Uh, and, and these are things that, that there needs to be some public recognition of who these people are. Otherwise, you end up with a lot of chaos on a regular basis. So let's, let's just pretend we didn't know who the pastors were. We didn't know who the deacons were. We didn't know who the trustees were. We didn't know who ran business meetings. How do we, like, we show up and just whoever wins an arm wrestling contest teaches that day? Or, and what do we do with the offering? We just kind of, like, where does it go? And how does that work? So th there's, some, there's some very practical benefits of having uh, church officers. And the good thing is the, the New Testament um, elaborates on this quite a bit. Now, the, the thing I want to guard us against is that you don't have to have an office to serve. You can worship, you can instruct, you can fellowship, you can evangelize, you can serve without having an official title in the church. So just because we're going to talk about these things, it doesn't mean, oh, that's the only people that can do anything. No, no, not at all. We're all commanded to engage in these things. So, so the first uh, uh, church office, really, that, that Grudem talks about is the apostle. So I think you've got that on your handout. Is the apostle on your handout? Yes, yes, it is. Great. And you'll notice none of those verses are highlighted because we're just going to blow through these. So uh, apostle is somebody, uh, there's really two job uh, prerequisites before you can be an apostle. One is something that you have seen, uh, and one is something that you've been told. You have to have seen in the New Testament the risen Christ. So if you saw Jesus Christ after his resurrection, you could be in the, the hunt for the job description of an apostle. So you could be. Now, we know that there were at least 500 people that saw Jesus after he was uh, resurrected. The New Testament tells us that. So that's kind of a, at least a general population of starting point. The second piece is that you've got to have been told by Jesus that you are actually an apostle. So that helps. So, so it's something that you have done, and it's something that you have been told. Otherwise, somebody could claim that office and use it inappropriately. This is, could be very dangerous for the church. So um, if you think about who the population of apostles were, so how many, how many disciples did Jesus have that followed him? A whole lot more than that. There's 12 that get named. Uh, there's actually dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. They're just not, not named. He commissioned 12 to go and to be his apostles. He said, you will be my apostles. Now, did all 12 of those make it? Did all, who didn't see the risen Christ? Judas. Judas didn't see the risen Christ. So he didn't actually get to be an actually functioning apostle. So that's something interesting to know. And then in Acts chapter 1, I think it is, uh, they're sitting around. They go, well, there's just 11 of us. Jesus, he picked 12, so maybe we ought to go back to 12. Maybe that's important. So they call on a guy named Matthias. They, they actually cast lots. The lot falls on Matthias. So Matthias is the 12th. In the book of Acts, I think it's in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are described as apostles. And then in Galatians, James, not the one, not the James that's in the, uh, the 12 uh, disciples, uh, but James is described, we think, as being an apostle. So if you add all those up, you get to about 15. And that's it. There's not any more people in the New Testament that are defined as apostles. So when you drive down the street and you see a billboard that says, come to so-and-so church and hear apostle so-and-so teach. It's not right. It doesn't align with what the Bible says the requirements for being an apostle are. So we have to be careful about how we use these terms because the apostles were given the authority to, to write Scripture. That's to speak on God's behalf, to make discerning judgments, to correct 
bad theology at a macro level for all of the churches that existed at a time. That's, that's a lot. So we want to be very, very careful about applying that title to somebody. So the second one is uh, elder. Uh, and I really, uh, I like where Grudem starts on this because he talks about plural elders. That's kind of his first point here because every, elders are like uh, cherubim. Um, you guys, you know, Valentine's Day is a holiday. You know this? Yes. Yep. You'll start with easy questions in Sunday school on Sunday morning. So you go to the Hallmark section, you get a, a card, and it's got a little what on the front? A little fat baby with a bow and arrow, right? And that's a cherub. That is not a cherub. Uh, cherubs are described in the Bible. Cherubs are bad motor scooters. Okay? That's a technical term. Uh, it means you do not want to mess with them. Uh, there was a cherub, uh, two cherubs, actually. Uh, the only time they're ever described in the Bible, they show up in pairs. There's at least two of them. They always travel together, it seems. Uh, and every time elders are described in the New Testament, there's a plurality of them. There's not just one. So this is indicative of what might be a structure that we should be thinking about. Now, um, so the, the plurality of elders here. Uh, there's, actually, there's also no New Testament church, that, uh, however small it was, that had only one elder. Uh, everyone that we know about was commanded to have multiple elders in place, uh, in position of authority over those churches. So it's important to know. A couple other names for elders. So you got pastors, you got overseers, you got bishops. Uh, I think I've got uh, blanks there for, yep, all those different terms. You can go and see where those are used. Uh, the function of the elders, I don't think I put this on your handout. Did I put that on your handout? I did, good. Uh, to rule and uh, to teach. Those are the two primary functions. If you want to circle the word rule and circle the word teach on your handout, it's probably good things to focus on. Uh, you, it's a good to know that at 6.15 this morning, this was a four-page handout. So you're welcome. There's a lot more stuff that's on the cutting room floor that I didn't want to be, but it is the way it is. So, All right, so qualifications for elders. Uh, you should be at 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7 in your Bible. So who's got it already? 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Yes. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with con conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Excellent. So, I don't know how many of you have a job description at your work, but that is the job description of a pastor. This is the, the pre, not really job description, that's the prerequisites. This is what you have to have in place before you get an interview for the job. You guys familiar with this concept? All right, so if you want to go practice surgery at Memorial Downtown, there's a couple things that they're going to ask you before they give you an operating room. All right, show me what? You, you need some credentials here. And we all say, thank you, Memorial, for putting that in place because I don't want people operating on me without the proper credentials. Right? Those are the prerequisites for eldership in uh, the New Testament church. 
Uh, Grudem goes on and talks about uh, what seems to me to be 472 pages, answering the question of what is the meaning of husband of one wife. Uh, there's two passages there that I will refer you to. Uh, we're not getting into that today because I've got other things I want to talk about. Uh, the third office is deacon. Uh, and uh, deacon, for those of you that are familiar with this, you know that the word is very synonymous with what? With a server, right? It's, it's a servant or a server, literally like somebody who brings food. It's, it's a waiter type position. Uh, and the, the uh, job description or the credentials for uh, a deacon are actually the next few verses. So you got 8 through 13 there? Yeah. Awesome. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, manage their children and their house, own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So um, so how many ministerial degrees does it require? Did we see? No? You know why? They'd have ministerial degrees back then? It's okay. You've got to have job descriptions and functional expectations that can exist in any culture, in any society. Christianity is for everybody. It's not just the way that we do it here in America. It's for everybody. So that's the, um, the function, kind of the, the functional job description of a deacon there. Uh, and then Grudem talks about other offices. And, and there may need to be other offices that are developed for the practical carrying out of the work. Um, and if there are, okay. We're going we're gonna to hold that in an open hand. Uh, let's not be crazy, weird, awkward about what we call people. Right? Um, there are some really interesting job titles out there in ministry space. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but... Uh, it, some, some of them are so odd where you, you hear it and you go, like, who came up with that? Like, what, what, is, what is that about? It can be very awkward. Um, however, uh, if, if, I'm going to read you a quote from Grudem here. If other job uh, offices are established, it would be necessary to see that they are not overshadowed. They don't overshadow the importance of the offices specifically named in Scripture. So we shouldn't create offices that supersede or overrule the offices that the Bible actually described. Um, they do not have any authority that's not subject to the governing authority of those offices that are clearly named in Scripture. So, next question is, how should church officers be chosen? So, how do we get to the point where we have pastors and deacons and these other, uh, these other type of roles? And there's really two fundamental ways that you can do this. You can elect people from... Uh, the, the church congregation itself, and when I say the word church today, I'm, I'm typically talking about a local congregation. I'm not talking about the church universal. Uh, so you, you typically can have either the congregation itself does the electing, which is kind of a, an up arrow, if you will, of selecting of leadership, or you can have an outside governing body do the selecting and push that down to the local congregations. That would be a kind of a down arrow. The arrows are going to be important here because I'm going to summarize the three modalities of uh, church governance with arrows here in just a minute. So this will be your blanks in your handouts. 
there's not a lot that the Bible says about how this is supposed to work. Uh, you had folks like Timothy and folks like Titus who were commissioned by Paul to go into cities and churches and appoint elders. You're to go evangelize this completely pagan area, develop people to the point where they can come together and operate as an independent church, pick out elders that should be in place, and then leave. And then that congregation is on its own. You also have things like Acts 6.3, which talks about the apostles themselves told the church at Jerusalem to go and to select from among you people who can go and do the work, the actual practical work, almost deacon-type work, so that the apostles aren't burdened down with uh, waiting tables and doing the, the more administrative, the less administrative, physically demanding jobs that were required to actually perform the duties of the church. Does that make sense? So you can have congregationally elected or you can have hierarchically pushed down. So let's talk about the forms of church governance. Here we go. So there's three fundamental forms of church governance. This should be on the back of your handout. Yep, there we go. Uh, number one is Episcopalian. And do it with a lowercase e because this is not the Episcopalian church, the Episcopal church. This is Episcopal with a lowercase e. E-P-I-S-C-O-P-A-L-I-A-N. If that was too much, yes, I did get it on the screen for you, okay? Episcopalian. So the basic premise in an Episcopalian uh, structure is that there is, watch me, the man at the top of this structure that says, you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of this. And then each one of those that he said you're in charge of, they get to pick and say, you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of this, and you're in charge. It is top down, all the way down to where a local congregation gets told who the leader of that local congregation is. There is not uh, a significant amount of time spent on voting in these types of structures. It is the man picks and pushes down. Does this make sense? All right, I've got a picture for you here. Um, so you typically have something, the, the, turtle, the, type, turtle, the title might be archbishop or cardinal or pope, pope right? Uh, the Catholic Church operates in this function. So that the archbishop would pick the bishops, the bishop picks the rectors, the rectors are over the congregations. And there is no voting that occurs here. So next to the uh, word Episcopalian, put a down arrow. Now this is, I am not making a, a moral judgment on this um, structure. That is not what the down arrow represents. It's top-down uh, governance structure. The second is Presbyterian with a lowercase p. So in a Presbyterian uh, model, the authority is in the elders of uh, the congregations. And, and those elders are actually selected by the congregation. They, they can be selected and voted upon and put into positions of authority. And then those elders, they will uh, come together as, uh, as a presbytery uh, in sessions and say, all right, we're going to be part of a general assembly, which is a governing body comprised of all of the, the E's or the elders here. So it's, it's, a, it's moving up to this level, but then this level gets together and pushes things back down as far as doctrine. So the election goes up and the doctrine comes down. Does that make sense? Yeah, it feels like there ought to be a song about that, right? So, 
So that's the, the Presbyterian model. Uh, and then we come to the congregational form, which is each, uh, each congregation has the local authority to do what it uh, will. And uh, the closest thing that I could come to that was the wild, wild west. Um, and, and, and it is, it is I, I joke here, and like we are in this model, okay? So I'm joking about us. Uh, the, the reality is it is very difficult to describe all of the different variations that can occur in this model. There are a lot of different ways that you can go uh, with this. And I am just blowing through a ton of good stuff. I have 14 pages of really good notes today that I am only going to talk about three and a half or four of. So if you want to know more about this, uh, go to that website at the bottom, stewardice.org slash Sunday School, click on the teachings link, and there's just gobs and gobs and gobs more, and you can go geek out about church governance like I've been able to do the last couple of weeks. So. Uh, oh, on, on a related note, uh, this lesson brought to you by American Airlines. Uh, I was, uh, a big chunk of the finalization of all this was done flying from Denver to uh, Charlotte yesterday. So I feel like I should give them a plug since they <laughs> provided the environment in which I put the material together. So anyway, all right, so, uh, you, so you got congregational. So the first type of congregational we'll talk about is single elder. And I think that's the blank on your handout. The single elder approach. So this is the, you've got a pastor, and, and there could be a lot of different terms for this. It could be a senior pastor, it could be an executive pastor, it could be a... Uh, whatever, but there's, there's some individual person in this box who is sometimes assisted by deacons that may or may not be a governing board uh, and the congregation at the bottom. So um, look at the arrows here. So the congregation elects both the deacons and the pastor. So everything goes up in a congregational form. Well, let me rephrase that. Everything goes up in the vast majority of congregational forms. I refer you back to uh, the wild, wild west, there are scenarios that we'll talk about in a minute where there is just no structure at all, and, and we'll look at those. Um, and you can probably imagine my view of no structure at all. It is not mathematically encouraged. That's correct. Um, that is correct. All right, so uh, Grudem goes into a lot of uh, time here talking about the different uh, types of congregational uh, church governance structures, primarily, I think, because uh, he operates in that model predominantly, uh, and he knows that most people that are in that model are going to be the ones buying his books. So you kind of flesh that part out that talks to the folks that you're going to be talking about, and it is what it is. So, all right, so another model here is plural local elders. Um, I think plural local are the blanks on your handout. So this is, uh, you've got a group of elders that governs, that are elected by the congregation. You see my little asterisk here? This is all Grudem's. I, I thought this is beautiful. The pastor, I love asterisks. Asterisks are great. I can't say the word properly, but I love them. Uh, the pastor is one of the people that is in a governing position over that local congregation. So this is plural local governance. Grudem, uh, he doesn't come out and say, I like this one the best, but... He sure does say it indirectly, <laughs> about 47 different ways. Uh, so it, I think this one models more closely what the New Testament generally teaches in this space, but it is pretty open-handed on how you apply a lot of things. So uh, I'm not going to say everything we talk about this morning is in an open hand, but it's certainly not in a clenched fist. Uh, we have good, God-loving, Jesus-loving believers in all of these different types of models. I want to be very cautious that I'm not 
denigrating somebody else's model. But Grudem talks about at the end of the chapter, and this is a 47-page chapter, by the way. Most of his chapters are about 15 to 18 pages. This was a beast. Uh, Grudem talks about at the end of the chapter that you can be more pure or less pure in all aspects of church, including governance. So we want to be as close to what the Bible is telling us we ought to be as possible. So in this model, we'll talk about a couple strengths and a couple weaknesses of this model. Um, the pastor doesn't have sole authority over the congregation. Have you ever heard of a church that got in trouble because the pastor did something? Uh, yep, I'll just stop there. Um, so there is some level of limited authority in a group dynamic. Uh, the theory is it is harder to come to doctrinal craziness uh, in a group than it is all by yourself. Uh, and I would say that is mostly true because there are groups that come to doctrinal craziness uh, in groups, but it's theoretically a little more difficult. Um, a, couple, a couple restrictions here on how much authority uh, the elders do have. The congregation has the same Spirit of God, has the same Word of God, has the same command to obey the instructions from God as the elders do. So there is just as much... Um, direction for obedience to the congregation as there is to the elders. So this does not mean just because we have a lot of elders, we're good, we get to kick back, we don't have to worry about things. No, 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 not at all. Congregations always have an accountability to hold their elders accountable. Always. This is clear, direct commands that we looked at last week in the lesson. This is how do you approach and rebuke someone who is in a leadership position? Well, you, you do it privately. You do it in a very small group. You do it with respect as if this person is your father. Um, you do it in a way that you're going to be looking toward restored relationships down the road. So just because there's a plurality of leadership doesn't mean the congregation gets off the hook from a we're invested, we're engaged perspective. Does that make sense? You with me? This is riveting stuff, isn't it? You're like, the other structure folks in the room, let it be known. I had a second on that motion, so got a third? Got a third? Excellent. Great. Uh, all right, so there's a couple more models here that I want to make sure we look at. Uh, the, the next one, the C, is the corporate board. And what I want you to do in your handout is draw a big X over corporate board. Uh, there are a few models that are just not biblical. Uh, this is one. Uh, the idea here is that the business world has a really good way to run a business, so we should bring that model into the church. There is no basis whatsoever uh, in the New Testament for such a model. The congregation from amongst the congregation are selected uh, to be some members of the church board. The church board hires and fires the pastor. Here's the problem with this. The pastor, the elder, has authority for the congregation. So now you have a model where the pastor has authority over those who have been given explicit direction to run the church and to hire and to fire him. Does this make sense? Yes and no, right? You, you, I understood the word you said, and no, this doesn't look like anything in the New Testament. Correct. Good. All right. Next is uh, pure democracy. We're just all in one big happy boat, right? We vote on everything. Okay? This structure almost never results in a church of any significant size because you just, it's very difficult to grow with 
like no structure. It's a sheep pen. <laughs> That's actually really good. Yeah. And, and so, there's, so let's talk about the positives of this, right? The positives of this are that you have a lot of uh, accountability, right? Because nobody's, nobody's above anybody else. That seems, that seems nice for maybe five minutes. And then you realize that we need to get something done. And, and, and you just, it's just very difficult to do anything in this space. Uh, so what do you think I want you to do on the pure democracy? Big X over pure democracy, right? This is not described in Scripture. This, this is explicitly not the structure that the Bible talks about because this ignores the eldership uh, of responsibility. Uh, and then we have no governance but the Holy Spirit. That's what that looks like. Um, <clears throat> literally, in Grudem's book, it's kind of this, uh, this fuzzy-looking cloud and, and, you know, the reality here is that there's, there's, there's just no governance whatsoever. Everybody, you come together. I don't know when you'd come together because nobody decided. But you come together and you, I, don't, I don't know what you do because nobody's in charge. It's just the Holy Spirit. And they, they learn, there's very small uh, groups of people that do this because it, this, it's not sustainable. Uh, almost always results in a, a cult at the end of it because somebody will rise up and say, the Holy Spirit told me that I should do this. And everybody goes, oh, well, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, then we should back off and you should be in charge. And then what you turn back into is the wild, wild west. Okay? Yes, Dave? Thank you for asking a question. I needed a drink so badly. Something that a lot of people get confused with governance is the um, function of the corporation versus the function of the church itself. Yes. From, from uh, people and and, and more of a spiritual aspect of it. Um, the corporation has to have a president, has to have a CFO, right. has to have, you know, they have to have the C-level type you know, positions and so forth in order to exist in the state of Tennessee and as a, as a nonprofit, and there's certain things that have to yep. be done. But um, sometimes those things get carried over that they now yes. have a spiritual weight. Yes. And <clears throat> usually it's strong personalities yep. that, that, that adopt those things that are not, are outside of the models. Very much so. And it's also very easy for those uh, in a church leadership position, or for somebody in an eldership type position, to look at a very successful corporate model mm -hmm. from a financial, from a growth, from a leadership, from a whatever, and say, oh, well, well, God has obviously blessed that. We should take some of those elements and include them into the church governance model. And I'm not saying that's always bad. I'm just saying... We're not going to throw all of our stock into that investment, right? We have another option that is, I think, relatively explicit on how we ought to do things. And uh, no part of the Bible looks like this. Well, I guess maybe the Exodus did. Um, <clears throat> that was good. Wasn't I didn't even plan that. That was good. Um, all right. So we're, we'll end there with uh, no governance with the Holy Spirit. Okay. So some conclusions here uh, by Grudem. And again, I'm going to make sure. I put this as a blank because I want to make sure I focused on this. The form of government adopted by a church is, what do you think? Not a major point of doctrine, right? <clears throat> I want to make sure that we are very clear about, unless, unless you, you have some model that ignores the direct teaching of Scripture, right? So provided we're not in... Oh, did I tell you to cross off the no government with the Holy Spirit? Please tell me no, you did, right? You did already? Good. Excellent. Good. Yes, ma'am? Where are independent Baptists? Uh, independent Baptists almost always are here. 
in the single, single elder, almost always. So you, uh, I can't say all Baptists because, <laughs> well, well, West. Uh, but that's such a handy thing to be able to go back to whenever I want to make that point. Um, but the vast majority, of, so I grew up independent Baptist in this type of a model. Uh, this middle section was very weak in my home church. Um, and I, I don't know that it needed to be that strong, just from a, uh, this was pretty good. Uh, and it, it called out individuals from the congregation to function in roles like this, but there wasn't a, lo- a lot of formality around this. And there's a lot um, of discussion, too, about whether or not deacons should be like, able to remove a pastor because of their servant. Oh, yeah. Servant, yeah. And why do they yep. have the authority to remove yep. a pastor? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great question that I'm not even going to try to answer today. Um, so the, I have an opinion. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get real serious and I'm going to jump back into this. I really appreciate you guys. Um, I really do. You, you are a continual encouragement to me and I appreciate the fact that you care about this kind of stuff. Uh, I talk to a lot of people about what we do in Sunday school, and people just do not understand how there's a group of people on the planet that is interested in systematic theology. So thank you for that. It is extremely encouraging to me. Some of you are going, we're just here until you get to the next topic. That's okay. We, something hit me last night. I was talking to Julie. We only have 10 chapters left in the book. Yes. Yes, we will do it again. Now I know what I'm talking about. So, Right? Um, so, yeah, so the, um, the question I thought somebody would ask is, what is Stuart Heights? <laughs> Depends on the day. Um, so f- from an organizational chart, it looks like this. From a functional perspective, it is a little closer to this. So... If I could, and I couldn't figure out, I'm not a graphical person. I actually went to a class in Denver on Friday uh, on doing graphics. And what I got out of it was the arrows for the models. I was like, that was simplification for me. This is good. But there's some way to reflect graphically, I'm sure, the, different, the, the way that Stuart Heights operates from, you know, Gary Jared is our senior pastor. And, in, and we have a variety of senior staff that come together for collective, collaborative decision-making. And sometimes they will bring in members of the congregation into this group to function in an elder-type role to help with certain decisions and certain process and whatnot. And then we, we kind of we jump back and forth. And is that right? Uh, it works, right? And it's not... I don't think it directly violates any of the New Testament principles, so... That's kind of the, the open-handed approach that I have here. Does that make sense? Um, I'm trying not to sell my own stock, but that's, there's always a danger with this, right? That, well, you're just arguing that because that's what you do. Well, I, I'm doing it because I already thought through it and decided that was closer. So, yes, Dave? I think it's always uh, a case, too, of the, the people involved. The yes. strength of personality Absolutely. and the type of gifting yep. that's involved with each of the, you know, uh, having worked at several churches in town here, you know, some pastors get it that they are not administrators. Yep. And so, therefore, they bring on someone to, to, to partner with them. Right. Other people don't, other pastors, they don't get that they're not an administrator yep. and they try to, try to do that and it, it yeah. doesn't work as well. One of the things that Grudem talks about the, whoops, 
that the dangers of this model is that you can wear this poor dude completely out. This is, I mean, you, like just love on people and pull, pull on some help and get some help. Um, the plurality of eldership is a, is a really big deal. All right, so that's the conclusions. Um, point D, should women be church officers? Uh, you notice that there's nothing highlighted there because I'm not planning on spending any time on this. Um, uh, Grudem actually refers you to, he, I think he writes like 12 pages about this in the book, which is supposed to be some type of a condensed version of he, he and John Piper's book that I have not read, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, it is, uh, from what I, the way he describes it, it dwarfs uh, uh, systematic theology. So it's a really weighty volume. Um, I think it probably should have been a set. Uh, but anyway, I, I'll read you a couple uh, summary statements here. Men and women have equal value to God and be, should be seen as having absolutely equal value as persons and equal value to the church. Amen. Amen. Uh, evangelical churches have often failed to recognize the full equality of men and women and thereby have failed to count women equal in value to men. I think that's, that's true. Uh, and then his kind of summary statement here uh, the Bible does not permit women to function in the role of a pastor or elder within a church, uh, which you know, we read the definitions of uh, what the prerequisites for church eldership are, and it's the husband of one wife. And until that says something different, that's where I'm going to land on that topic. Um, I can't, that's my favorite quote from Brian right now is, I can't make it say something else. It just says what it says. Um, all right, so that's the lesson for today. I uh, can't believe I got through that. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> this, was, this was fun stuff for me. So hopefully you learned something about different church governance structures. Um, you have an appreciation for somebody that you work with, that they go to a different type of church, and now you understand, oh, so when they say this, they mean this whole other model that doesn't look anything like what I'm exposed to. So, yes, Ms. Sharon? If we go to this online, Yes. Yes, and this is, this is my version of a couple of things. Some of this looks exactly like what Grudem has in the book, um, and some of it's a little bit different because his images are so grainy in the book. I couldn't get like, good clean shots of them. Yes, yes, there's a whole lot. I have almost a page to a page and a half on each one of those uh, forms, uh, which is a summary of Grudem's probably four or five pages in his book on each one. So, yes, there's a lot more online. All right, so uh, scripture memory passages there at the bottom. Uh, lean in for a sec on the weekly update. Pray over those requests. If you will, now I finished on time today, so there's that. Uh, please glance through the prayer requests and update any that need to be updated. We've had several that have kind of bit gotten stale and I think have probably significant updates exist. So please look through the weekly update. Find yours, provide updates. Annotate those updates on the page and we can cycle back through and Ms. Darla will... Uh, be all about the structure of keeping that right. So thank you much. Appreciate you being at Sunday School today.